August of 1973, Jan-Erik Olsen walked into Kreditbanken in Stockholm, fired a few rounds into the ceiling, and announced in a fairly convincing American accent, this is a robbery. The cops turned out in force and surrounded the bank, and then Olsen took four of the bank employees hostage. They were Christine Enmark, Birgitta Lundblad, Elizabeth Olren, and Sven Sevström. The police were completely unprepared to deal with a situation that, as the Swedish press said at the time, and as some of the hostages themselves said later, was thought only to happen in America. And that won't be the first time that you hear that kind of sentiment either tonight or in episodes to come. So Olsen demanded the equivalent of $700,000, two guns, bulletproof vests, and a Ford Mustang as his getaway car. And he also wanted his old prison buddy Clark Olofsson released from jail and you know brought to the bank. Once Olofsson was inside, he tried to act as a mediator between Olsen and the cops in an effort to protect the hostages and also to you know have his sentence commuted in some way. So what followed over the next six days was the police continually trying to outsmart Olsen and only creating more confusion and tension you know, in the process. So at one point they misidentified Olsen as another armed robber called Kaj Hansen. And then they sent Hansen's brother and a cop into the bank to negotiate. The police then only realized that they'd screwed up when Olsen opened up on Hansen's brother and the cop. And then Hansen himself phoned them from his hideout in Hawaii to let them know that he was totally innocent in this particular situation. And in the process, uh, just incidentally, he actually unwittingly tipped the Swedish police off to his location and then they extradited him from Hawaii back to Sweden. So the cops tried to drill a hole into the wall of the bank as well so that they could kind of surreptitiously peek in on Olsen and he noticed the spy hole immediately and fired at it. The psychiatrist the police brought in as a consultant during the standoff, this was a Niels Beyerut. He was seeming to go out of his way to antagonize Olsen and piss him off. And then the hostages began to grow increasingly convinced that the situation was going to end in a bloodbath. And by the third day, three quarters of Sweden's entire population was tuning in to watch the TV coverage of this hostage situation. So Christine Enmark decided, as she put it, to strategically befriend Olsen to try to make him empathize with the hostages. And it actually seems to have worked. I mean, at least up to a point, they were allowed to call their families and friends. And at one point, uh, Christine even spoke to the prime minister of Sweden, Olaf Palme. And she spent almost an hour in tears telling him about her fears, about her concern over how the police were managing the negotiations, you know, expressing a growing belief that she wasn't getting out of it alive. Palme told her that she could take solace in knowing she was a fine employee at Credit Bank and if the police did eventually raid the bank and she was killed during a shootout, at least she'd die at her post with honor. Uh, seriously, he actually said that to her. And then on the sixth day of the standoff, the police did indeed attack 
the bank. They used gas canisters to blind and confuse Olsen before arresting him and freeing the hostages. None of them, none of the hostages, were especially impressed with the way the cops had prolonged the standoff and exacerbated the situation, you know. And then Christine and Mark went on Swedish radio shortly afterwards to criticize uh, Niels Beirut directly. Now, Beirut, without ever meeting her, claimed that Christine and the other hostages uh, in, you know, criticizing the police more severely than Olsen and in trying to befriend Olsen were displaying symptoms of a psychological condition that he termed Normalstorg Syndrome. Nobody outside Sweden had the patience to learn how to pronounce that, least of all me. So we just took to calling it Stockholm Syndrome. And then a year later, Patty Hearst was maybe but not really kidnapped by the Symbionese Liberation Army. And the press said that her transformation into a gun-toting left-wing outlaw had all the classic signs of Stockholm Syndrome. Classic signs as if this had been long established, you know, and not just something that was made up the year before. And then since then, we've used this term to describe all sorts of situations where victims apparently come to sympathize with or even like fall in love with their kidnappers or abusers or what have you. And it's all because nobody really appreciates that the term was coined by a man who was feeling defensive about the incredibly shitty job he did handling a hostage crisis and who was damned if he was going to take any shit off a girl who didn't even have a PhD, friends. So I bring up Stockholm Syndrome because it illustrates something that we'll be expanding on as we tell the story of Olaf Palme, uh, his assassination, and frankly, Sweden as well in the second half of the 20th century. Because we have official narratives, you know, these are the things that we all believe, or we're all taught to believe at least, about big moments in history. But then we have that layer above that, which is the cherished myth, you know. The Soviets were kind of bit players in World War II and it was really the Americans and the British that won that war. That's the kind of thing I'm talking about. And we cling to these cherished myths because they appear to explain the world in a neat way that doesn't disturb the sleep. So it's easier for everyone to believe that one hysterical woman at a bank fell in love with the guy who took her hostage. It's easier to believe that than it is to believe that an entire police force and their hired psychiatrist might be totally full of shit and not really have a clue what they were doing. Uh, for people who only have a broad familiarity with everything that we're going to discuss tonight and in episodes to come, it's easier to believe that Olaf Palme was a shining example of how you do left-wing politics in the context of Western capitalism. It's easier to believe, I guess, that he was killed because of his politics by dark forces that he was totally unaware of and even antagonistic towards. And it's easier to believe that Sweden was and is otherwise a shining beacon of progressivism that we should all be aspiring towards in a world where major countries are shifting further and further to the right by the day. So what we're going to do um, in the weeks ahead, hopefully, 
is aim some well-placed shots at this edifice of cherished mythology around Olaf Palme and Sweden and its context in the Cold War. And we're going to try to offer an alternative view of the last few decades of Swedish and even European history. So we are, as James Elroy once said, we are going to embrace bad men and the price they paid to secretly define their time. And then we are going to ask one final question. What now? I had a dream about this place. stories for the end of the world and we're kicking off the big return to Europe with the story of Olaf Palme, his assassination and why it still matters. But as we said at the top of the show, you can't talk about any of this without discussing Sweden, its history after World War II, its place in the geopolitical intrigue of the Cold War. So we're also going to be discussing that as well. Tonight in this first installment, we are starting broad, right? We're going to offer a overview um, of all of that and give you guys a kind of Sweden 101. And then we're going to close with a step-by-step account of Palme's murder. And I'm joined for this by Marcus of the Return of the Repressed podcast. Hello. And Sebastian, a unlicensed private investigator. Both of them are authentic Swedes. And I thought that was the best way to kick off this return to the the dark heart of Europe. And what better way than with like one of the most notorious uh, political assassinations in Europe in the latter half of the 20th century. Um, so how are you guys? Good? Yeah, doing all right over here on the other side of the planet. Yeah, <clears throat> it's uh, great to be here. Uh, I think uh, we're going to have a lot of fun today. Yeah, yeah. This is fucking wild, this story. Um, okay, so we're talking about Olaf Palme and why his murder matters. And we're also going to be talking about Sweden in broader terms, really. Uh, in Not just in the 80s, but you know, in the years before and after um, Olaf Palme's murder and the legacy of the assassination as well. Uh, we are going to go deep to, I thought I knew this story until I met these guys and it turned out I don't know shit. Sketches a, a broad overview of uh, Sweden in the 80s and Olaf Palme uh, right. in general. Okay, Marcus, do you want to uh, take the lead yeah, here? Yeah, I can, I can do that. I can start off. 
were honored by this uh, you know introduction but in the in the league of uh, swedish um knowledge about uh, palme we certainly do not know that much i think like it doesn't really matter you know whatever we will eventually say there is definitely going to be among your swedish listeners a lot of people who are disappointed that we didn't bring up their favorite lead or their favorite tidbit or their favorite anecdote etc etc but uh, i th- i hope i hope yeah you know that we can that i'll be able to answer what you just asked of me and uh, give uh, yeah some kind of uh, some kind of an introduction that it isn't that isn't uh, too generic like you know even if you feel like you know a little bit you should you should be able to feel that something new was provided and hopefully even if you feel like you know a lot maybe something new will be introduced for other reasons than those reasons like uh, the amount of interest that this have in the public consciousness of the north of europe at least uh, it's of course impossible also to give a full picture of what is possibly the world's longest murder investigation i mean it's estimated i think that it would take about nine years to read through the official material alone and you know that would require professional familiarity with legal texts so yes that, that's crazy uh, yeah i think the amount of pages is uh, somewhere over 700,000 mm. uh, in the official uh, yeah. not including the, the books uh, and uh, articles and stuff like yes. that yes yeah the a visual image of that is like that's 250 shelf meters uh, <laughs> of stuff yeah that's so crazy. yeah i mean if uh, even like you know a focus on a particular lead yeah uh, like that of stieg engström uh, the scandia man which have now recently been put down as the uh, most likely unlikely killer then um, uh, or you know everything that lies behind him let's say like stay behind and uh, the very company that he worked for will only hope to scratch the surface right so <laughs> still uh, in this very first episode i hope we'll, we'll get something right so i mean almost uh, uh, of those you know meters of shelf material then like 130 people have pleaded guilty alone and almost 100,000 different names are mentioned in connection with the murder in the official report. Yeah, and I just imagine how fucked up that is. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah why would you claim a murder, you know? <laughs> so these are, these are 130 people who've come forward, like, claiming credit for the murder i think we should end, we should end the show with uh, with matt claiming the murder. <laughs> just to see and then we back him up like and we split the we split the reward money <laughs> the the main thing that i kind of engaged with when i first started reading about this years ago um was the fact that it is unsolved um has it's it's created like a void and it becomes almost like a Rorschach test and people can read what they want into the murder and what, what it means to them, you know? Um, and 
it's it's interesting how I mean we'll be getting into this a lot later on, but it is interesting how even like the security services and the police have used it as much the same. Like they've used it to sort of settle scores or you know build up their own pet theories about about what was behind it, even though a lot of those theories are deliberate bullshit. Um, so right, like, yeah, you even have like state apparatuses fighting yeah. each other. Like it's not yeah. just the the leads of of uh, you know private investigators or or uh, you know authors yeah. of books <laughs> yeah it's a uh, yeah I mean the, and I, in addition to that I mean what makes it I, I now I don't remember but I I know what you mean by the word you said you mean that sort of the kind of uh, like the vase right do you see two faces or do you see a vase uh, I can't remember what the psychology was. What was it called? Something R, right? A Rorschach test, you know, like an ink block test. So yeah, yeah, yeah. You've shown an image and it's what you see in that image tells you a lot about right. yourself, you know, allegedly. That's yeah, the theory yeah, yeah. anyway. Yeah, I mean, one thing that might add to that being, you know, very much the case is that there is almost no technical evidence, like in the traditional sense, mm. right? So there's no DNA, yeah. no fingerprints uh, or footprints, no found murder weapon. Uh, and even the the two bullets that were found, you know, they can't with certainty be linked to the. Obviously, you know, since there is no murder weapon, they can't certainly be linked with the uh, with that murder weapon. So, I mean, there's a lot of uh, that's problematic if you're going to solve the crime. I think. Yeah, uh, I mean, we'll be getting into more specifics about why there is no physical evidence uh, really yeah, relating to this this murder. That'll be a little bit later on though. But that in and of itself um, should tell us quite a lot about maybe some of the motives um, of the, the investigators and whatnot. The fact that the investigation was so botched from the beginning. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I mean, uh, obviously now, like, you know, because it was only, well, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it was last year, right? Or was it the year before last? that uh, they finally closed yeah then basically this the longest running murder investigation uh, in history and uh, yeah right and so you know and like i said right they did that with uh, concluding that it was this man called Stieg Engström yeah so this is june 2020 i think when they they announced that he was the prime suspect but uh because he was already dead uh they they were un- i think they were unsure as well whether they even had enough evidence to have actually convicted him had he been alive yeah so they 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 closed down the investigation uh, with the account of him being dead yeah and i think they said uh i think one of the concluding remarks was like there's no way we can get around him i mean i mean that can that can mean either that we have so much evidence against him or it can mean basically yeah that he's dead so i mean you can't get around a corpse then i guess if you want him to speak about something i remember you were saying um the other day that there is a lot of kind of noirish aspects to this story and i think the how unedifying it is the way it ends which is to say it doesn't really end we, we just can't take it any further forward that is so noir in and of itself you know it's just this complete lack of um closure to the whole thing right 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 it's just an empty street sort of and yeah. then there's like the fin or something yeah. and then yeah. it's like what please more <laughs> uh yeah i mean uh i uh, i i i think though it seems i mean because there are other things you know in connection to this which we will get into later i already mentioned you know something like stay behind mm-hmm. we should know that stay behind the swedish stay behind is like the only european uh 
you know, of all the Gladio projects that have hasn't been acknowledged at all by the by the uh, uh, official uh, repressive apparatus. Like, I mean, they have hinted at it being the case, and since Norway and Denmark have basically admitted that you know this was taking place, obviously. Sweden has to be involved somehow. But so I think, you know, with more things like this popping up, for sure, we, we, there will be more and more pieces of the puzzle falling into place, right? But um, maybe, maybe what, what we're lacking is just the narrative, right? So that's why we, we're sitting down today to, you know, speak upon this. Because the, uh, the reason, like, you know, how can it be, you know, that uh, this man, then, Scand- the Scandia man, the Engström, why didn't he, you know, why is it uh, up until you know what was it that made sure that they now with certainty can say that they can't get around him uh why why was you know what happened to him prior to that and for those who have seen you know like the netflix uh, uh tv series i'm sure you had similar questions you know like why it seems he seems like a pretty likely unlikely murder right like how can it be that why was he put away as, as uh, I mean, eventually Hans Holmer, who is the, uh, the man who takes over the investigation, who leads his own task force. So I'll get him to, I'll get into him in a bit, but you know, he basically just refers to him on paper as being on site. I mean, neither a witness nor a suspect, uh, which yeah, he's I, just ambiently there. Yeah, 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 yeah. Which is so, yeah, it's such an awkward title, right? That he just invents for this person who now, you know, it makes it even more awkward, obviously, now. And um, the first independent uh, journalistic, you know, investigation to draw attention to Engström was the uh, the newspaper The Proletarian, which is, a, uh, I mean, the most famous Marxist-Leninist paper in Sweden and the most, lo- like, the longest-running communist one, I think. Uh and they, they didn't, I mean, he, Engström appears, the Scandia man appears in this paper initially uh, as a sort of uh, scoop to the police lead, which is basically, you know, the theory that uh, there was uh, uh, a conspiracy within the police uh, to an- assassinate Olof Palme. Uh, Olof Palme, now I'm saying it like you, man. What can you do to me? <laughs> Yeah, uh, and, and so um, <laughs> and uh, in the, in that paper, like uh, initially Engström, he was not suspected, and you know, but he was treated as a witness with information about this police lead, and the fact that he was dismissed uh, as a witness was taking as a sign that the police were afraid, you know, of what he had to say about them. But um, when it was revealed some months later that a group of uh, policemen separate. You know, to the investigation team of Hans Holmer, which again, that is, uh, he's the not only the uh, head of the Palm investigation task force in the beginning, but he is also a former secret police uh, head. So, so uh, we already see the contours of some what we referred to earlier, sort of uh, contradiction between the different state apparatuses. But before we get to that. Um... Um, I'm wondering, Matt, uh, like how how much do you know of Olaf Palme, uh, the man? Uh, so kind of a a soft left. I'm not saying this is what I think. This is just how he's kind of sold to us in the West. Like a soft left guy who set the example for how you you could do it. You know, as a leftist in electoral politics in the West. Um, 
like a bloodless revolutionary, you know? Um, mm-hmm. And certainly like... That's a nice title, actually. Yeah, it's like, you know, the the Scandinavian-style social democrat of all Scandinavian-style social democrats, you know? Yeah. Uh, basically, the model, I think, for what, like, Corbyn and Bernie were held up as being. I think so, too. Agree. Yeah, yeah. And, and someone that leftists in the mainstream, I would say, in, like, Britain and America kind of point to to reassure like the more conservative and right-leaning parts of the electorate that this can be done, you know, and you don't have to lose any money as a result of it being done. Mm. Uh, I would say that's basically what my impression of him was, you know, before I started kind of digging deeper into him. Yeah. Yeah, it's kind of like political pragmatism of some. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and I think I don't know how much your uh, listeners know about uh, Sweden uh, at this time and in this period, but if we go over it a little bit brief, then you know it's uh, Sweden staying out of the the Second World War uh, allegedly, at least, um, and then uh, building up uh, all of this. Uh, Uh, like the welfare state or the Swedish model uh, as it's uh, uh, known. And um, I think uh, uh, at the time of uh, Palme's murder, he had been like a politician for a very long time, right? Uh, So he was, um, let me, yeah, he was 59 uh, when he was uh, killed uh, in uh, 1986. Uh, and this wasn't his first term either, was it? As, as no, it was his fifth fifth term. Yeah. yeah. So he was uh, actually um, prime minister in uh, two separate periods. First from 1969 to 1976. And then he lost an election. And it was the first time that the Social Democratic Party lost an election in Sweden, I think, in like uh, four decades yeah. So they had been uh, ruling for a very long time. As the most successful democratic uh, party, right? Like in the world. To, yeah, yeah, I think to, so. Like in terms of how long they have served, like uh, yeah, in a parliament, like in a democratic, well, bourgeoisie democratic parliament. Yeah, exactly. And, and Palm, he had been uh, coming up uh, under this, uh, the previous guy, Tage Lander, uh, and had been in his cabinet uh, for a long time before as well. So he had uh, been basically in politics for uh, all of his uh, adult or even in his youth, uh, so for all of his life. Um, and he was this uh, uh, figurehead of the um, the, the Scandinavian-style uh, social democracy. He was kind of beloved, wasn't he, like outside of Sweden by a lot of um, developing nations. Like, I think I may be wrong about this, but I think he was the first Western leader to visit Cuba after the revolution. Yeah, I just uh, remember in the documentary, there's like uh, a lot of footage when he does visit Cuba and he even gets, you know, sort of like those portraits, like classical communist, you know, party head portraits like that you will see of like Mao, Marx or, or Lenin or well Castro himself uh and and, you know a huge one like I don't know how many meters like you know as they greet him uh uh, at the airport in Cuba but uh yeah I mean that's I I don't know like you know that's the thing right like there's so many different images to this person I mean Seb knows a lot more than I do about like actually how many different you know faces there are to this person but 
like you said, like I think you know, being beloved, uh, I'm, I, yeah, I mean, he was really uh, liked, especially in Sweden. You know, very popular um, prime minister. Like you know, he was, it was disappearing a bit towards the end. Yeah, I think we'll get to we'll, we'll get to to those uh, things a little bit later. What I'm thinking about is if we. Um, broadly speaking that uh, um, to uh, put in context the the state uh, of Sweden that he inherited so um, for example during uh, Tage Lander the the previous prime minister that was the prime minister for um, 23 years just like imagine that like the, this guy before Olof Palme was uh, for 23 fucking years uh, the, the same uh, guy without losing an election you know and uh, uh, those were the days under this uh, guy Lander that uh, the state got really involved with uh, doing a lot of uh, like building what is known as the the welfare state right yeah so already when Palme got into office they had some reforms of course in the early years but uh, his um, terms were uh, plagued by a, a lot of scandals and, and a lot of uh, uh, conflict within the party as well uh, that we will get into a little bit later. Uh, so, he, but he basically inherited this uh, uh, this party and the the, uh, the government uh, when they had the majority, you know, in the in the parliament. So they had over fifty percent of the of the votes uh, in the beginning. Um, so they could basically. Uh, do whatever they wanted to uh, in terms of uh, 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 policies and, and reforms. Uh, and then when we get into his uh, uh, second term, then it's uh, they, uh, they lose this majority and they cannot uh, uh, enact on their uh, policies the same way. Uh, and then, of course, we have the, uh, the side of him... Uh, uh, internationally, uh, like you said, uh, all of his uh, trips to the third world. And also, like, adding to what you said there, like, I mean, the fact that they're losing in popularity also means that now that's going to, you know, they're going to have to make a lot of more compromises to stay in power, which makes everything a lot more, you know, volatile, like uh, uh, tender, how to say, delicate, right? Like, it's easy, it's easier for things to break at this point. Yeah, that, that's something that... Um we should probably point out, isn't it, which is he was broadly popular, but that kind of conservative business class in Sweden fucking hated him. Yeah. Um, so hated. Like, they, yeah. And so it, it's not like it's not like he was this universally worshipped guy, even in Sweden. Uh, he had a lot of kind of antagonistic forces um, that he had to contend with. I have a little list, actually, like of everybody, like like broader like historical blocks or apparatuses within the state that, that might have uh, you know that would paint this picture like who 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 hated him basically his enemies list yeah yeah, yeah. the yeah. kill the pig list well it would be the opposite right everybody who wants to kill the pig list yeah uh, yeah <laughs> i think that um something that we'll be getting into a lot in uh, future episodes but we can probably mention now is um a pretty significant part of his uh I, I suppose we could call it his his foreign policy or certainly his his foreign policy opinions was that he wasn't a, 
ardent critic of uh, the apartheid regime in South Africa as well, yeah. which did not make him very popular with uh, fellow Western leaders, uh, Thatcher, Reagan. Right, right, right. Like the white bloc of Africa, basically. Exactly. Right. And this is uh, like if we back away from Sweden, we see at this time uh, uh, in the 80s, we have, like you mentioned, the Thatcher, Reagan, all of these guys and uh, the security state and the intelligence states in the Western world, like really uh, upping the ante, so to speak. Uh, they they are completely off the leash in the 1980s. I mean, obviously, we're just coming off the back of the Octopus series on this show. And it's a kind of, it's a high tide of like intelligence agency bloodshed, you know. And we will get into this more in the next episode, but we will see how the shift um, in the US-Swedish uh, relations uh, during his uh, early days, because uh, it was not as uh, not as uh, antagonistic in the beginning, right? So not as anti-imperialist as, as one would like to believe. Maybe. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's a key feature of this story, really, is that nothing is really as you, you know, you've come to believe it actually is. Once you actually start doing the reading and getting deep into it, you realize a lot of your previous assumptions were wrong. Yeah. And especially as a Swede, like you really feel, you know, all the talk about like cult personalities and stuff. Uh, mm -hmm. I mean, it's it's one one thing to, you know, point a finger at at an entire people and a nation and perhaps a person which you know nothing about. And say you know that they are you know that they're engaging in some kind of personality cult, but I mean it's difficult for a Swedish person, I mean me included, to sort of one by one you know take away things that you were brought up to believe about. Well, essentially, who you know the man who's supposed to be sort of the most important person of your nation for uh, during the 20th century. So you were saying that towards the end, uh, there, towards the in the in like the the year or so leading up to his murder, he was kind of dropping off in popularity. So I guess we could say yeah. that the the murder kind of made a martyr of him in some ways. You know, yeah, in uh, a way, maybe a sort of it actually helped cement his legacy, as as cold as that sounds. Yeah, it's kind of that Caesaristic touch, right? Like, I mean, yeah. By the time Caesar gets killed, we know they're not going to be any more you know, great uh, wars of exploitation and loot somehow. You know, there is actually really nothing left for the Caesar but to die at that point somehow. I don't know if, you know, that might not directly correlate with Palme, but uh, maybe. Yeah, I'm doing it again. <laughs> <laughs> but, but maybe there is something to it, you know. Like, uh, I don't, like, I was going to go, I mean, if you wanted to paint, you know, uh, the image like of somebody who's lovable and like neutral. Like, so I went back to sort of uh, Sweden, like in World War Two, right? Like when I mean, usually, usually every story starts with World War Two, but uh, 
like so in Sweden I mean most people in Sweden who are like somewhat self-respecting knows that we weren't really neutral like during the second world war and um, uh, you know we would favor whichever side was winning uh, meaning that up until 1943 when the events of uh, you know 41 and 42 which is like Stalingrad, El Alamein and uh, the US declaration of war on Germany etc uh, turned out to be, you know, not mere exceptions to German war luck. We uh, aided relatively unhindered the Germans with weapons uh, and, and the, you know, the manufacturing of weapons. So, I mean, the major thing is that you, I, I touched upon that um, uh, in one of my episodes about like the early sort of bourgeoisie relationships that Germany made before Germany became a nation. It sort of had its, there was a Germany before there was a Germany, which was basically like a sort of like, you know, store, same Stahl und Kohl, like a steel and coal uh, organization of industrialists, basically. And uh, one of uh, EU. Yeah, yeah, something <laughs> like a EU. Yeah. yeah. Uh, like a grosser Deutsche EU, right? Like a bigger, greater German EU where Scandinavian countries are also seen as Germanic countries, you know. It's got that that kind of touch to it and so uh yeah i mean sweden was important in that sense because the world's largest iron ore mine is found in the north of sweden uh and so what we call the malmbanan like the uh, it's an infamous like iron ore line it goes from uh nazi occupied uh, norway to the um finland in the east right and so it was used for uh yeah, the production commodities that needed to be shipped to keep the war going and other heavy industrial, you know, heavy industry production commodities and also some of those high-tech precision parts that they were very necessary for, for uh, German war industry. Yeah. And so, uh, I mean, this history is still unfolding. Like, we still don't really know how much we helped the Germans. And, you know, obviously there's a bit of friction to let the world know just how helpful we were. But uh, for uh, since we're on a British podcast, we could uh, summarize by quoting your good Winston Churchill, who said that uh, Sweden, quote, Sweden ignored major moral issues in the war and played both sides for profit. <laughs> that was terrible. But yeah. yeah, that's what he said. So, I mean, this... I mean, America did the same, you know. Yeah, it's like, for sure. It's, it's not a uniquely Swedish trait, I would say. Um, no, I, I think not. pretty much everyone wanted to do business with Germany until Germany turned yeah. around and fucked everybody. Um yeah, I mean, my thesis is basically that since the Napoleonic Wars, there's been definitely been like an industrial uh, and banking oligarchy, which is international enough to profit from either side of 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 the wars. Uh, but but still, I mean, the 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 nation state isn't just a matter of appearance, you know. So they still have to sort of, you know, they can't just declare outright global anarchy and. Uh, you know, suggest that we are all going to be, you know, puppets of various different dynasties of corporations that wouldn't really, you know, that wouldn't sit tight with everybody. So, but, uh, but then, you know, uh, so maybe Sweden can be like sort of the signifier for this kind of behavior, but as a nation state, but since, you know, obviously this nation state is also, you know, made up by, by some of those international oligarchs, right? So it's, it's after the war and Sweden, 
starts building up this uh, this welfare state and it starts making a name for itself as a kind of uh, left-leaning, I guess, like liberal democracy and whatnot. What prompted that and why was there no kind of uh, push or was there a pushback, in fact, from like the more conservative kind of uh, industrialists and, and business class in the country? I think to, to answer this or to, to get the, the full picture, you have to really go to the heart of what you know social democracy is um and uh, because in the um early um like in 1910s 1920s the um, um, swedish working class uh, were amongst the most uh, like how do you say prone to conflict and it was uh, actually very close that uh, the proletariat in Sweden uh, had their own revolution, right? So you have to see social democracy as an answer to this. Uh, So even in the beginning, uh, the Social Democratic Party, and you can see this similarities if you look in Germany, for example, uh, during the time with uh, Liebknecht and uh, Luxembourg, that uh, the Social Democratic Party is filled with uh, all of these ghouls, right? So I'm not saying that everybody is. You had the true believers that uh, um, really uh, thought that you could uh, come to socialism through reform, but you also open up the door for a lot of people uh, from the um, upper classes uh, to take advantage of this. And this is something that you can see like uh, I think this will be an episode in in itself, but you can see uh, this throughout the the history uh, of the Swedish uh, Social Democratic Party, and this is what uh, 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 Palm is uh, a part of, and we will see uh, like this legacy um, of uh, en- enacting reforms that are demanded by the by the uh, the working class. Uh, and then, but they don't do it, uh, you know, how to say, without the popular demand. So that they're always doing these types of reforms. They're uh, calling out on the Vietnam War and stuff like this. But this is because you have the popular, um, like um, the masses, uh, a mass base that is uh, demanding this uh, um, this type of politics. Also puts me in mind of. Um... Like the creation of the NHS here in Britain was very much a kind of a response to people coming back from the war and demanding, you know, reforms. And at the time it was kind of like, well, if we don't do this, there is a very decent chance, you know, that we could have some kind of like socialist elected into power um, and then we're really fucked, you know. So it yeah, seems but- like from, yeah, yeah. if I take what you're saying – Right. It seems like social democracy, in a sense, has been kind of instrumentalized as a weapon against um, more revolutionary currents in Swedish society, used to dilute. Yeah. And, you know, if you if you read the old uh, texts and documents uh, they, um, uh, from the 30s and the 40s, and the, um, they are always referred to as social fascists. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so this is like uh, how the the left uh, saw the Social Democratic Party. Uh, 
it's really like that the, the social democratic party uh, is the like how do you say the rational or the the logical uh, bourgeois response to uh, these class demands from the, uh, the the working class we could we could say that like the disciplination of the productive forces is not only in the interest of the historical necessity yeah. towards communism there are also some people who would like to see that everybody shows up on time yeah. and with NHS are healthy enough to do the work that they're asked to do. So if we go back then and look at the, this uh, the Swedish model, it was always, you know, uh, uh, they call it a deal between Swedish capital and between Swedish labor. But it was uh, through the Social Democratic Party and through the, uh, the unions that have been co-opted by the leaders of the Social Democratic Party. So in a sense, you had these uh, spokespersons uh, that were always connected to the party uh, that uh, closed the deals and uh, with the uh, Swedish heavy industry, for example. So when they uh, then after the war uh, builds up the, the, the welfare state, it's always uh, with the interest of Swedish capital in mind and it's always to not go too far and this is something that we will see that changes in the 80s for example uh, like I said before that uh, the right wing in the 80s are like completely unhinged you know so it's like they get high on their own supply uh, and then they just uh, start to believe all of their crazy propaganda, for example. Yeah I mean the 80s is very much the kind of right wing pushback in the West begins in earnest, I guess, against that like post-war consensus, uh, that, de that deal that had been reached between capital and labor everywhere, really. I wonder if it feels like there was a sense that the USSR wasn't long for this world in the 80s. And I think that definitely emboldened them, uh, emboldened them a lot. Um, it was kind of, we're nearly there, just keep pushing, you know, like push harder. Sort of thing. Yeah, and then you have the the, the roots, like the the grassroots of the the right wing. Uh, those guys, you know, they don't know all the plans. They are not in uh, yeah. these meetings and uh, getting the full picture. And they're just amping up and amping up and getting more, you know, uh, crazier by the minute. And we see this in the in the seventies, for example, and in the in the 80s, that it's uh, getting worse. And the propaganda against uh, the Soviet Union, for example, is uh, amping up. Uh, and I think it was really a sense in the, not only in Sweden, but uh, um, in all of Europe that uh, this was coming to an end, you know? Yeah, it's, I mean, in the, it's yeah. in the beginning of the 80s that both the Holdemore, uh, you know, mythology and the discrediting of the Great Leap Forward as a man-made famine. I mean, people had spoken about that before as being, you know, just a famine. And now the, the you know, the narrative is that, look, this is what communists do. They murder millions, tens of millions of their own people by starving them to death. And so, I mean, yeah, it's like, it's a different, it's a different time, like <laughs> this time. And, and then, you know, they, this also points towards Again, like, you know, what kind of role then Palme as a middleman, as you know, he sees himself as an anti-imperialist who is at the same time an anti-capitalist and 
an anti-communist, right? That's the ideal social democrat position to take. And so, you know, how are you going to play that game when the the middle point is, you know, dramatically shifted to the right by the sheer lunacy of people like Reagan and Thatcher uh, et al., you know? That's, uh, yeah, that's, that's a difficult game to play. I guess in broad terms, then, I'm curious about how he did actually handle uh, his time in office, you know, in the 80s. We'll, obviously, we'll be getting into this in much more detail uh, in episodes to come, but just broadly, like, uh, so he arrives, it's the 80s, the right is kind of insurgent. How did he respond to that, or did he respond to that? Yeah, in 1976, right, he loses the election. So he's uh, not in government uh, until 1982 again, when he uh, comes back. And just in those uh, uh, years, um, in those six years, uh, it's a completely different landscape, right? Uh, So it was a lot that happened uh, during that time. For example, you had the Iran-Iraq war. Um, you had in Sweden, if we look uh, uh, more uh, closer to home, you had the uh, submarine scandals uh, of the uh, 80s. So there was a lot of uh, scandals about uh, Soviet uh, submarines in the Swedish archipelago. Uh, and now, like maybe, yeah, what is it, 40 years later, we have a lot of evidence that points that maybe it was NATO submarines, you know, and this was a pop. <laughs> yeah, sometimes our our own as well, yeah, right? yeah. like so Swedish but, uh, shock. Yeah, also an episode in itself, but <laughs> just uh, this sense of paranoia, you know, um, mm-hmm. that uh, yeah. oh my god, Sweden is under attack. I have a nice little bit about that paranoia, like it, it just one second. Like, so have you heard about uh, the uh, Marine uh, Commander von Hofstein? Did you hear about him? The Fleet Commander Hans von Hofstein. Go on. Uh, yeah. A bit, yeah. <laughs> so this guy, he ha- his major thesis was that uh, uh, Palme was controlled like telepathically, kind of like Yuri's Revenge style by the KGB <laughs> to like allow these submarines. <laughs> and later, like, I mean, and he didn't just think this, like the latter stages of his paranoia, he and some other like chiefs of the secret police started this kind of mission where they would stop, uh, you know, trucks coming from Poland and stuff, like delivering, you know, groceries, you know, and, and searching for these mind control devices in, inside like, yeah, like, you know, uh, piles of cabbage and stuff like that like it's just really crazy stuff but it yeah but it's not just like a funny tidbit because people i mean have suggested that he brought almost uh, at least you know the the army nobility within the marine to a sort of almost a verge of organizing an actual mutiny like year you know in the months leading up to the to the assassination but uh, yeah, oh, so like an actual military coup. He yeah, was... yeah. Well, at least yeah. within the Marines. So I mean, that has happened before, right? Like those tend to be the most famous ones uh, when the Marines do stuff. So I mean, that even though he is obviously off his tits, like he's an insane person, <laughs> but still, like if people believe him, you know, then it might have some material uh, effect, right? It's not just his own crackpot 
theories about the state of the world. But yeah, yeah, yeah. so we go, yeah, go on. Yeah, but so when he uh, comes back into office in 82, um, first of all, he's no longer in a, he's in a much weaker position uh, politically. Uh, the party doesn't have the majority in together with their coalition uh, like they had before. So they're a minority government. They cannot uh, rule as they were used to because, like I said, uh, uh, when he lost in uh, um, 76, uh, he was the first to lose in like uh, 40 years. Um, So, of course, this must have uh, had a huge impact uh, on him uh, like personally as well. Yeah, it's quite a big black mark against his uh, career, I guess, is that? Yeah, exactly. Uh, So in the years between, uh, before he came back, then he was uh, focusing more on this uh, international side. He was uh, a mediator in the war uh, between Iran and Iraq, and he was um, uh, traveling around uh, the world, giving speeches and and stuff like this. Uh, So a lot of what we know about him is actually from his... uh, year when he was in opposition and not in in the government uh, and had all this time but so when he gets back um the landscape is a little bit different and uh, i would say that the the two major uh, political topics uh, during this uh, time uh, these last four years uh, in office before his murder uh, was the um this um, question about the submarines and the the uh, Soviets uh, being in Swedish water, uh, and uh, the uh, question about uh, employee funds. Yeah. I don't know if you know about the wage taker funds, right? Yeah, exactly. Okay, so yeah. what was that? The, uh, the employee funds. It's an interesting topic. This one. <laughs> It's close to my heart, this one. Yeah, but but it's um, basically that uh, the the laborers get uh, a part of the uh, the profits that are put into special uh, like trusts or funds uh, for the workers. So that the and this is very um, simple terms. Uh, we can like debate about the the details, and there are a lot of uh, um, because they were um, presented as a socialist uh, uh, reform, uh, but but there's a lot of debate if there, it's actually like a socialist or if it's communist or if it's just uh, this uh, uh, social democratic uh, trick, uh, you know. But anyway, so uh, in broad uh, terms, it's uh, a part of the profits should be reinvested into the company into funds. Uh, that are um, 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 goes to the employers or the employees. I'm sorry. So uh, then all of the uh, the wage earners or the employees they would have a direct interest, uh, an economic interest in the company that they work. Uh, and this and this is something that was uh, uh, when you read today or when you hear about it, it's uh, uh, very closely connected to Olaf Palme. For example, but uh, he was actually against it. Okay, so this is, goes back yeah, that's, to yeah, what, that's the funny thing. Yeah, this goes back to what we were talking about with the the grassroots and uh, what the uh, the masses want, right? Uh, and uh, if I remember his quote quote correctly, he said something like, 
the wage earner funds are terrible, but we have no choice but to go through with it. Is yeah, basically his words. Yeah, yeah, and he all he all he also has a lot of uh, quotations about him not wanting to be the the one that uh, destroys the party. He doesn't want to be remembered as. Uh, the one that is uh, destroying the party. Uh, and this was a very... Because you can see here like a, a sort of shift, I think. Like I read one book that sort of collected a lot of like articles on this wage taker fund from this period. And you can see the sort of... I mean, we know more about this uh, demarcation today that there is already sort of a, a split in the party at this time, like between a more, you know, let's say they, you know, tr traditionally or classically we say either democratic socialists or social democrats, right? So that there is one, you know, a right-wing, more right-wing side and one more left-wing, like Sebe said earlier, true believers who actually thinks that social democracy is a sort of uh, reform towards, well, socialism and then maybe communism or, you know, something better. Whereas, well, the cynicist, uh, realpolitik, social democrats, they know this is a, the best way to, yeah, once again, disciplinate the productive forces and give them just as much as they you know demand so that we can keep making profits right so that um, exactly and it's also a way of moving you know um uh, moving the power base from the capitalists to maybe the unions for instance or to the to the party so it, it is that they they want to take away power from the capitalists but it's not giving it directly to the workers because even if the workers, for example, would um, take part of this, uh, these uh, wage earner funds, um, they're not the ones controlling them, right? So, of course, you would still have it uh, uh, being uh, through the unions. I saw like one DDR critique of this, which I thought was the most interesting, because this is also like sort of in the, uh, like, I mean, the, the Shanghai Commune has already happened, obviously, which, uh, I mean, it points towards this kind of you can have you know work brigades made up of work teams right and so is there a sort of you know a, a smaller atomic unit below the union apparatus that could have its own wage taker fund i mean people were speculating in these sort of directions and the ddr critique was really like sort of suspicious i mean i, I don't know I, i'm guessing that this person was uh, uh you know an industry owner uh, or any like, you know, high up within the party and, you know, was given control over a lot of, you know, industry. And he saw the problem of this wage earner fund that you could have something like, let's say the Shanghai commune or something appearing where, well, yeah, like Sebe said, you know, the, the shifting of uh, power <laughs> basically into the hands of, I mean, because you're creating a new kind of class consciousness when people are, no longer forced to only think about their economical returns in terms of a, a, a salary, but you are, you know, you are forced to think, at least in the standard way that it was put forward, everybody who works for the same company becomes your economical comrade in a way, right? Because if they do better, you will also do better. And and it and you don't all work for the profit of the of the owner of the company. I mean, obviously, again, like there are many ways you can take this, uh, uh, you know, p every person being a stockholder in their own company can mean a lot of things. 
Uh, I mean, you have syndicalist, 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 sorry, uh, pro- problems uh, as well, and like you know, uh, co-op problems as well, because you're still going to be competing with other proletarians on the market, right? And you know, so of course there are a lot of issues with this, but yeah, so uh, go on. But uh, I think the, the yeah the the thing about this that would it was these two topics were the I would argue the argue the, the largest uh, topics of the day in the early 80s uh, during uh, Palme's uh, second term and both of them were obviously very aggravating to the to the right wing um, with the one uh, about Soviet submarines in Swedish waters uh, spoke to him being you know a traitor or not being tough enough on the Soviets and letting them uh, um, have their uh, ships in our waters and the one about the uh, employee or wage earner funds is taking away power from the the corporations and the the capitalists um so um and there's a third one as well uh, can i just add one i think in like in this trifecta like the he uh he also suggested um there was this talk about a new draft law that would change the status of the police in uh you know in this in in the situation of uh, of an occupation obviously a soviet occupation and how it was you know it was uh, it was decided that they would not try to fight the occupier but that they would the police would work as a police force uh to you know maintain uh well civil society yeah stability and order and yeah yeah that's right right okay so obviously people who you know who are right leaning within the police took this as a great offense, you know. So now basically he's alienated himself from, you know, the parliament, the you know, the military and the police, basically. Yeah, that's right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. But so so I think this is um, the politics of the, of the day in the 80s in Sweden. Um, not going into too much about the international situation, but just looking more uh, uh, within Sweden's borders. Uh, and this is uh, obviously very um, different, and it's uh, uh, a period where it's marked by a lot of conflict. And uh, if you read a lot of uh, biographers uh, about Olof Palme, they say that he was very tired uh, as a a politician and uh, just uh, on a personal level uh, just just uh, nagging on uh, for year after year about this uh, conflict within the social democratic party and uh, with uh, like marcus said with the military with the police and with the right wing always amping up their uh, uh, attacks on on both uh, palm and uh, this, uh, the party
The last Friday in February 1986 was a day of big and small private and public events, as the days were for a Prime Minister with an extensive agenda. The bodyguards picked Olof Palme up from his home at 8.30am for one of the week's highlights, which was the tennis match in the Royal Tennis Hall. Afterwards, they stopped at Strom's men's restaurant. Olof returned a suit that he bought the day before. It had been given thumbs down by his wife, Lisbeth. And after a bit of party political business at his office, a heavier um, meeting awaited him. This was with the ambassador of Iraq, and it was mainly on security policy issues. The conversation ended with a task that disturbed the prime minister's peace of mind. It appeared that Iran had access to the Bufosh-made Robot 70, despite the fact that Iran was on the arms export ban list. A grumpy and annoyed prime minister was having lunch with his government colleagues but seemed to have spaced out when the newspaper Statsanstelt visited for a report. This is like an internal parliamentarian paper. Uh, this was uh, followed by semlor, which is a kind of whipped cream uh, wheat bun treat in Sweden, with uh, the Norwegian, well, seems to be all over Scandinavia, with the Norwegian ambassador, and then a meeting with Margareta Grappe, CEO of the International Center for the Labor Movement. The day faded away out in mixed activities, and when the prime minister walked in through the front door of the apartment at Västralånggatan 31 in Gamla Stan, nothing had been decided for the evening. The bodyguards had been sent home earlier in the day, Nothing unusual in that, the surveillance of the country's prime minister was on his own initiative, the minimum possible. After some discussion with their son, Morten, and his girlfriend, the Palme couple decided to go to the late-night performance of the Brothers Morsart, a movie in which Olof Palme had been offered to participate, but had declined. The couple left the apartment uh, shortly after 20.30 to take the metro to Rådmansgatan, near the Grand Cinema. Down on the platform in Gamla Stan, an overly refreshed Friday celebrant shouted, Hey, Palme! And Olof cheered back. Anyone could end up at arm's length from the country's prime minister. And a prospective moviegoer walked so close to the Palme couple all the way from Rådmansgatan subway entrance to the ticket office that he occasionally heard what they were talking about. He, like many others, noted that bodyguards were nowhere to be seen. Once the Palmas had collected their tickets, they stood in the street outside the entrance together with their son and his fiancée. Morten had missed that the movie started at 21.15, so they had to wait in plain sight on Sveavägen for up to 15 minutes. Once inside the auditorium, some people who were personally acquainted with the Prime Minister nodded in recognition. TCO chairman Björn Rosengren and his wife Agneta were sitting in the armchairs just behind the couple Palme, so they had time to talk about work before the commercial started and Lisbeth suddenly shushed them. A moment before the end of the Mozart Brothers, the second movie of the evening at Grand, the Soviet film Come and See ended just after 11 o'clock. Two friends, Margareta Storhök and Anneli Korhonen, came out from that movie to the foyer. 
while Korhunen went to the bathroom, Storhök waited inside the entrance. She then noticed that a man was staring intensely through the glass doors. When the visit to the toilet was over, Korhunen also noticed the staring man, and when the friends went out into the street, they felt that he was looking at them with a, quote, tense and anxious look. The man remained outside the cinema, seemingly waiting for something or someone. A few days later, when Storhök was asked to describe the waiting man, she described him as a Northern European, about 175 centimeters tall, with blue eyes and light hair color. She remembered the jacket as half long and light blue, the trousers as dark blue. An ordinary middle-aged man, simply put, but with two details that stood out. According to Storhök, he wore, quote, large framed glasses and a, quote, light brown cap with ear flaps, end of quote. Several moviegoers observed a waiting person at Grand, including Lars Knub. He saw a man dressed in dark clothing and a, quote, sports cap with a screen, end of quote. The man was standing to the left of the entrance, did not appear to be a moviegoer, and looked like a cross between TV character Marve Flexness and actor Björn Gustafsson. The person made a dorky impression, Knub summarized. A few minutes after these observations, at seven minutes past 11, the Mozart brothers ended. The Palme couple lingered and remained in the salon for a while before going out into the foyer, where Olof was caught up in a brief conversation with a teenage girl who wanted more money for culture. The Rosengrens talked about offering Lisbeth and Olof a ride home, but they never offered in the end. Then out on the street, Olof and Morten stood with their respective partners outside the ABF bookstore, a little bit from the movie theater. They discussed the rest of the evening. At a quarter past 11, uh, the couple separated and Lisbeth and Olof walked off towards their home in Garmlestan. Then Morten also noticed a man staring into a furniture store next to the bookstore. Morten perceived him to be around 40 years old around 180 centimeters tall and heavily built. Uh, he was wearing a blue jacket that went down quite a bit over his legs and a cap with a button and probably also steel-rimmed glasses. Meanwhile, the Palme couple continued their walk southward. After a while, Lisbeth wanted to peek into a shop window on the other side of the street so they could cut across to the eastern sidewalk of Sveavägen where the large Scandia building dominated the neighborhood. There were far fewer people moving around here. The spouses lingered for a while outside the clothing store, sorry, before continuing home with Olof Palme closest to the facade and Lisbeth arm in arm. At the same time, inside the insurance company Scandia, the graphic artist Stieg Engström reached the sliding doors to the reception and swiped his time card in the card reader. The time was 23.19. He wore a dark three-quarter length coat, dark trousers, low shoes and a cap with ear flaps. There were two guards in the entrance, one of whom Engström knew quite well. True to form, Engström exchanged a few words with them before hurrying on. The two guards saw Engström pass through the entrance of Skandia Huset on Svea Vägen before 
disappearing down the sidewalk. And at this point, Stieg Engström and the Palmes were almost alone on this part of the street. Now at the southern end of the block, where Svea Wegen is crossed by Tunnelgarten, there was this, a designer called Anders Bjorkman. Now, he was slightly drunk after a celebration with some colleagues from Bufosh Aerotronic. He caught his breath for a moment before he decided to head home. Now Bjorkman was passed by a chef, Nicola Fazzi, who hurried past in a northerly direction. He was tired after uh, his shift. And when Fazzi had passed the entrance to Scandia Huset, he was surprised to see the Palme couple approaching. He met them without a word. He noticed that they weren't alone on the pavement. There was a man following the Prime Minister at a distance of about five to 10 meters. He just figured this guy was a security guard, even though he seemed quite old and you know kind of out of shape. He did remember that the man who was following the Palmes was wearing a blue jacket that reached mid-thigh, uh, but otherwise he didn't think much more of it. In addition to the Palme couple and the man walking behind them, there were 22 people in the vicinity of this intersection at 11.21 p.m. Uh, Bjorkman um, was now very close to the street corner and an archive worker, Lars Jepsen, had taken a break behind a construction shed um, just a little bit further down. The other soon-to-be witnesses were kind of moving around um, Sveavagen or sitting in one of the cars stopped at the red light at the intersection. So apart from Nicola Fazzi, who had moved on and was now on the sidewalk north of Scandia, no one was even aware that the country's Prime Minister, Olof Palme, was in the neighborhood. Anders Bjorkman saw three people. He got the impression that they were walking together and therefore knew each other. Bjorkman was only three meters away from Olof Palme and Lisbeth when the man walking behind them fired two shots without warning. Uh, a few seconds apart, maybe one or two seconds apart. Olof Palme collapsed in mid-step and fell forward, as if all control of his body had been lost. The perpetrator ran away, away from Svea Wagen and into the darkness of Tunnelgatan. Other people in the vicinity of the crime scene barely noticed what had happened. It was only after they heard the shots that their attention was drawn to the three people in the intersection. As the shots were fired virtually at the same time as the traffic lights turned green for north-south traffic, the cars that had stopped at the red light were able to quickly turn on to the wide pavement. Within seconds, three vehicles lined up next to the crime scene. Closest to the scene, taxi driver Hans Johansson parked his white Mercedes. He connected to Solna Taxi to ask the operator to contact the emergency center and remain in the car waiting for a response. In the meantime, he followed the offender with his eyes, running between the wall of the Scandia building and some other construction barracks further down the Tunnelgatan. The offender turned around to see if anyone was following him, but Johansson did not see his face. At the same time, his passenger, Stefan Klanz, rushed out to the shooter on the street just before him. Teenagers Anna Hage and Karin Johansson came rushing from a car that had only stopped to drop them off. In front of the taxi was a Chevrolet van whose driver, Leif Jungqvist, grabbed his car phone to dial 90,000, but in his excitement <laughs> dialed the wrong number. The third car was a BMW whose owner, Jan Åke Svensson, observed Anders Björkman, who was wearing a blue jacket, hat and beard, 
peering fearfully out of the entrance to the Decorima shop on the corner of Sveavägen and Tunnelgatan. Svensson realized that Björkman should have made important observations and when he showed signs of wanting to leave the scene, he got out of his car to ensure that the eyewitness remained. This would be our Bufors man. Now Ljungqvist reached the alarm center and said, yes, there's been a murder on Sveavägen. Talk to the police, the operator replied. He was shot, Ljungqvist continued, and his passenger Jan Andersson added, I think we only heard one shot in the background. Jan Åke Svensson was trying to communicate with Björkman. You must have seen what just happened here. When the operator delayed transferring the call to the police, Leif Ljungqvist got tired and hung up. Instead, taxi driver Anders Dettelsborn was the first to reach the police via Järfella Taxi's switchboard. He too had stopped at the red light. Delsborn pulled over to the curb onto the other side of Seavägen, where he dropped off his passengers and took payment before hurrying over to the scene of the crime. Behind the construction barracks on Tunnelgatan, Lars Jepson heard the shots, and a few seconds later, he saw a man rushing past him. He saw a man rushing past on his way to the stairs up to Brunkebergsåsen. When the man had reached halfway up the long staircase, Mr. Jepson dared to leave his hidden position to look towards the junction where the shots had been heard and saw that four or five people had gathered around a fallen person. Jepson realized what had happened and turned to look for the offender who had reached to the top of the stairs. There the man turned around. Mr. Jepson felt that the offender was watching him, therefore took a few steps to the side to seek shelter in a scaffolding. Then the man disappeared. The witnesses who with reasonable certainty were the last to get a look at the killer were Yvonne Neminen and Ahmed Zahir. They were at the top of the stairs on David Bagares street and were on their way home when a man came running on the opposite side of the street. Of course, they did not realize at the time that there was a reason to remember this person. The shots had not been heard on the ridge. The running man attracted their attention both because of his haste and because he looked over his shoulder repeatedly while reaching for something in a dark wrist bag. As Nieminen recalled, the man was wearing an unbuttoned fluttering coat to knee height, dark trousers and probably a dark jumper under the coat. He was stocky or chunky in some way, around 175 to 178 centimeters tall and probably 35 to 45 years old. The man did not run very fast and at some point he slipped in the snow. It seemed exhausting for him to run, perhaps because he was in, quote, poor condition or for some other reason, end of quote. Neminen and Sahir continued walking on their side of the street and just above the top of the stairs, down to Tunnel Gatan, they met Lars Jepson. He had plucked up courage and decided to follow the perpetrator. While the three talked briefly with each other, the murderer ran off into the streets of Stockholm. At the scene of the shooting, uh, concerned people gathered around Palme while Anna Hag and Stefan Glantz provided first aid. The first police officers on the scene were Inspector Gösta uh, Söderström and a colleague of theirs called Ingvar Winden, who arrived about two and a half minutes after them. Söderström described the scene later. He said uh, they were standing in a circle, the, people on the street around a man lying on his back in a large pool of blood. His face was covered in blood, his clothes were soaked in blood, and he had a staring look. There was no reaction in his eyes. Soon, 
um, a patrol bus from Sir de Mal, uh, security district arrived at the scene. There were five police officers in this and they were ordered by Sir de Sturm to resume the chase, you know, to follow the man who'd run off. Hans Johansson, the taxi driver, he met the police officers and he said, you know, he ran up there, he went that way and he pointed towards Tunnelgarten. Now the officers did not react really at all to what they were being told. And uh, he, the taxi driver later said that as they kept asking me for uh, my story and what I'd seen, and as they kept asking the people gathered around for their statements as well, I kept thinking, you know, while we're doing this, the killer has run another 20 seconds away and another 20 seconds and another 20 seconds, you know. So the resuscitation continued. Uh, Anna Hag, she gave uh, heart compressions while Stefan Glantz tried to blow air into the lungs. And there are accounts of witnesses who were watching this throwing up um, because of the sight of the blood and how gruesome everything was. Some of the witnesses began to realize who the guy lying on the ground was. Um, and then they started to realize the enormity of what was actually going on here. At this point, we're only about six minutes after the shots had been fired and Söderström was able to inform the control center the victim is the prime minister. He had to repeat this information um, because he himself could not get his head around just how big this was. And then Palme was lifted into the ambulance and then with Elizabeth as a passenger, they drove towards the hospital. But the ambulance driver, for some reason, chose a slightly longer route. Um, and so his arrival there at the ICU was delayed. Uh, but it didn't really matter because the prime minister was dead the second that he'd hit the pavement, to be honest. Uh, Lars Jepsen had hurried along David Bagali's street where he passed a police car and looked for a person he thought had slipped under some scaffolding to hide. Jepsen then approached the police officer and he gave a description of the man that he'd seen fleeing the scene. The same description that we keep seeing throughout this. Blue jacket comes down to mid-thigh and a cap. And then the cop passed on Jepsen's information and another one asked Jepsen to um, accompany him to one of the patrol bushes at the crime scene so that he could provide further information before he was allowed to go home. By this time, Anna Hag and Stefan Glantz got a roll of gauze from a police officer and they kind of stood there wiping uh, the blood off their hands. But then the strangest thing happened after this, which is while Anna was taken for questioning uh, to the police station, Stefan Glantz left the scene without giving any information. Um, and he, as far as we know, he didn't actually realize that it was Olaf Palme that he'd just been trying to resuscitate and perform his first aid on. It was only when he read the morning paper the next day that he realized the context. And then some photographers showed up at the scene and these first pictures that they took capture police officers setting up the barrier tape and spectators being allowed to leave. The crowd had grown to around 20 people and in the initial emptiness, tears were shed by spectators and police officers. The search for the perpetrator continued, but the police had little to go on. Witnesses at the crime scene spoke of a dark blue jacket, which was complemented by a cap by Lars Jepson. For his part, taxi driver Anders Delsborn said that the offender was an older man wearing a long overcoat and a cap with ear flaps. 
both of these descriptions were altered. The police officers who ran up Burunkebergsåsen did not find any suspects and instead had to devote themselves to stopping people in the area to see if they had made any observations. Another 10 or so police patrols joined the hunt. When inspectors Christian Dahlsgård and Lars Christiansson arrived at the scene, they asked Mr. Söderström if he needed help, but his colleague said he was fine. Instead, it was agreed that Christiansson would go to Sabbatsberg, the hospital, to try to get more witness information from Lisbeth Palme. One of the radio operators at the police communication center ordered a dog patrol, when the dog handler arrived at the scene of the crime, however, he discovered that so many people had been hanging around that it was pointless to let the dog try to track them down. Only about 50 meters away, a 52-year-old man, dressed in a dark three-quarter length coat and a double-buttoned cap, pounded on Scandia's entrance door. About 20 minutes after he left work, Stig Engström returned and was let in by the surprised guards who knew nothing about the shooting. Engström was in a state of shock and had difficulty expressing himself coherently. Quote, There is a man who has shot over there and they say it's Olof Palme, end of quote, was the first thing he said. The guards couldn't quite make sense of his story. At first they got the impression that he had approached Palme and helped turn him on his back. However, the guards saw no blood on his clothes. It seemed that he had instead approached the shot man at a later stage. Mr. Engström claimed that he had given information to the police but did not mention that he had seen any perpetrator. After a while he called his wife to tell her that he was uh, running late and had to take the night bus home to Tabby. However, he was so physically affected that a security guard offered to order a taxi. Engström simply didn't look like he could make it to the bus. He was very shocked. Engström also left the reception to disappear into the house for a while, allegedly to have a cup of coffee. The guards reacted particularly to the fact that he said he couldn't believe it was Palme because he looked so small lying in the street. At the hospital, attempts to revive Palme were ongoing. And as a final measure, the doctors actually opened his chest up to massage his heart directly with their hands. And in an adjoining room, Lisbeth Palme sat with a nurse. Her back was burning and the nurse realized that Lisbeth had been a few centimeters from death, really, because one of the bullets had pierced her coat and scratched her back. At six minutes past midnight, less than an hour, after Olaf and Lisbeth had left the cinema, Olaf was pronounced dead. And Lisbeth Palme called her sons and she told them that what the family had feared for years had now finally happened. <laughs> 